All right, now, the Athanasian Creed. It's a really long walk to get up here. This is how the Athanasian Creed begins. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith, small c, universal, orthodox. This is what all Christians everywhere have believed. This is the core of Christianity, okay? Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the core of the Christian faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless blah, blah, blah. Then it says, now this is the Catholic faith. This is the core faith of Christianity. What do you think the next line is? And you can say it out loud. Like if you were writing this creed, what would the next line be? No wrong answers. I mean, <laughs> that's not really true. Jesus is Lord? That's a great one. Christ is risen, very key to Christianity. Come on, guys, we've heard from two people who don't even go here regularly. <laughs> Believe, that's a good one. This is the core of the Christian faith. Austin? Something about the Trinity, come on. I knew I shouldn't have asked you. Here's what it says. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. Really? The Trinity is the core of the Christian faith? There's a story that's told of a monastery in England and outside the chapel of the monastery, there's this plaque that reads, Here the monks would gather every Sunday to hear a sermon given by the abbot, except Trinity Sunday, given the difficulty of the subject. It's Trinity Sunday. <laughs> I mean, when we think Trinity, we think boring old dusty theology books in a smelly church basement classroom, don't we? This is not the stuff that really drags us from our bed in the morning. So why would the Athanasian Creed make it the big, bold heading, the centerpiece of the Christian faith? The Athanasian Creed is not one that we talk about regularly, but it's actually one of the three foundational creeds for Anglicanism. It used to be law in England that the Athanasian Creed be read in Sunday worship 13 times a year. It's a big one. This is, this is one that all Christians hold to, and that's how it starts. Are we missing something? Somewhere in there, the Trinity must be the greatest gift ever. And the fact that none of us really think that way means we must be missing something. So this evening, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, this is one of those Sundays that doesn't happen very often where I'm not actually going to use the texts that we read this evening, uh, because what we're trying to do is actually build a framework outside of those texts to help us understand them. Because we all have a framework for how we're understanding when the Bible talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so tonight, we are going to try to build a framework. And we're gonna do that 
by considering the nature of the Trinity very briefly, the disasters that we create when we deny the Trinity, and finally, the gift of the Trinity. And before you uh, turn your brains off or decide that you really feel called to children's ministry this week, because we're talking about the Trinity, uh, I'm going to tell you something that I told my wife two nights ago. Studying for this sermon, I think, has impacted my life more profoundly than almost any other study I've ever done. Okay? And I think it actually has, when we understand it rightly, I think this has the power to completely reorient our lives and see the gift of the Trinity. So here's the nature of the Trinity. Christian theology, as you can see, in that opening statement of the Athanasian Creed, defines Trinity as three persons, one being. Three persons, one essence, sometimes it's said. It's, it's not three gods, right? It's not tritheism, it's one God. But it's also not unipersonalism or what's sometimes called monadism. It's not just one singular person. It's a community of persons. It's a plurality of persons existing in one being. And over the centuries, theologians have tried all sorts of ways of creating analogies that will help us get our head around this concept because it's really difficult to understand. And frankly, almost all of the analogies are disasters. You guys have probably heard some of them, right? The eggshell and the white and the yolk or the steam and the water and the ice. Have you guys ever heard any of these? No? Just in seminary? They teach you the really boring stuff? The reason that these analogies tend to be disasters is because they tend to depersonalize the Trinity. And we start to think of God as this weird, gooey, divine substance that gets sort of cordoned off into these three channels, right? And so, though it's a bit difficult, I think, for us to wrap our heads around what, what it means for God to be triune in the core of his nature... I'm just going to go with, with what a brilliant scholar, Michael Reeves, says as the definition of Trinity. Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bound together, unified in their love for one another. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other. Okay? There's a whole bunch of philosophy way back there that if you really want to get into, we can sometime. But for now, we'll say... The nature of God, the thing that is behind everything else in the universe, is neither an impersonal force or energy, but nor is it this singular, monadic, unmoved mover, the God of the philosophers. It's a unity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we get it often wrong in our sort of default thinking. And that's where we start to create disasters for ourselves. So here's another question for you. If every Christian leader that you have ever respected woke up tomorrow and all said together, we no longer hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. We got it wrong. No more Trinity. Would it practically affect your life? Jesus could still be God. He could still die for your sins, resurrect does it change anything about the way that we live day to day? Now, I sort of tipped my hand already that the doctrine of the Trinity is actually pretty important. But I think for a lot of us, if we're being honest, we would have to say that no, our life wouldn't really practically change that much. 
And in fact, most of us can get through the entire Christian story without even bothering with the Trinity. It's really easy. Listen. In the beginning, God created the world, and he wanted the world to love him, and he wanted human beings to love him. And so when we rejected him and our ancestors, Adam and Eve, his anger was stoked, and our punishment is death and hell. But his grace and mercy is such that Jesus came and took our punishment so that we could be saved and go to heaven. That sounds about right, right? But what God is that? We'll call this God the Unitarian God. All of the major plot points are there, but in the stuff that we're leaving out and allowing our brains to fill in, it's completely unchristian, and it results in disaster. Here's the subtext of the story that I just told you. It's one of a lonely, needy, selfish, angry God, a God who needs human beings to love him and respect him, and if they don't, he's thrown into a rage. And in this scheme, salvation almost looks like we're being saved from God, doesn't it? Does it ever feel that way? He's certainly not someone we want to be around much. But this is the God that our culture largely conceives of. When we say the word God, most people in their heads think singular, one person who created stuff because he was lonely and bored and needed us to love him. And even more dangerously, it's the God that often gets associated with Christianity, even in our own minds when we're not carefully thinking about it. We, we start to think of him as this sort of all-powerful Santa Claus who obsessively keeps a list of who's naughty and nice, and then he only gives gifts to the good boys and girls, and everybody else gets this hellish charcoal. John Calvin, who was a sometimes cranky theologian who lived half a millennium ago, said that our minds... Our, our hearts and our imaginations are actually idol factories. We're just constantly churning out idols, anything but the true God. And most of us, I would hazard to guess, have created this idol. We have distorted God from a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and instead we have lurking somewhere in the back of our minds this selfish, needy, angry, power-hungry God who just needs to consume us. Calvin would say that we do this almost imperceptibly, even to ourselves. And so what happens is, even as I'm up here talking, and even those of you that have been in church your entire lives, when I say God, somewhere deep in your mind, you think, mean Santa, Unitarian God. Most of us don't immediately think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing eternally in love, do we? So it doesn't really matter what the preachers say. In the back of our minds, it's always lurking. Doesn't this God get angry and send people to hell? Doesn't he get jealous and demanding? And try as we might, we just don't want to have a close relationship with a God like that, do we? And so some of us even start to spin it that, well, Jesus is the, is the part that we want to be close to, and we're just not going to deal with the rest of it. But it actually gets even more disastrous for us than that. David Foster Wallace, who's another cranky author, he died a few years ago, he once told a group of college graduates, students who are getting ready to graduate, that everybody worships. There's no choice in that, but you only get to choose what you'll worship. 
But then he goes on to describe something very profound. He describes all the ways in which we become like what we worship. So if you worship money, you become greedy and insatiable and you start to use people and look down on those that don't have the things that you have and you'll do anything to get more money and there's never enough. If you worship beauty, you will go to any lengths necessary to stay looking young and fit and beautiful, even if it means starving yourself or injecting Botox into your eyebrows. Whatever the little G God is in our lives, it all gets traced back to this needy, angry, petty, Unitarian God that we default into. See, if the God that you worship is alone and needy and selfish and angry when he's rejected, then you'll act the same way. You'll use things and people as ways of finding self-fulfillment and it will never be enough. And we do it with everything. If you've been reading some of the new studies about what dating is like now with the advent of the internet, I read an interview with young men in New York City who were tallying up between 40 and 50 sexual partners a year with not an ounce of commitment. And one of the young men was interviewed, was asked why he wouldn't want to be at least in a regular dating relationship with any of these women. And he says, you can't be selfish in a relationship. He's a smart guy. You can't be selfish in a relationship. It feels good to just do what I want. And as it turns out, a self-centered God makes for a self-centered man, but the cycle just keeps recreating itself because a self-centered man is always going to fashion a God in his own image. But when we have a firm grasp of the Trinity, all of this nastiness starts to go away. And this is where we have to, to change our thinking over time so that when I say God, you don't think mean Santa you think Father, Son, Holy Spirit existing eternally in love for one another. Because we'll actually start to see a picture of a God that we like, a God that we would actually want to be with. It turns out the triune God is really nothing like the mean Santa we have created in our idle factory brains. The triune God is this joyful, loving community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they have existed in unity and love and service to each other from eternity past. And the Father's enthusiasm for the Son and the Spirit and the Son's enthusiasm for the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit's enthusiasm for the Father and the Son is so raucous that it's this exuberant, too many bubbles in the champagne glass sort of thing that they can't even keep contained and so creation just sort of bursts out of this intense joy. Robert Capon, who's a really fun theologian, describes what creation might have been like from a Trinitarian point of view. He says this, let me tell you why God created the world. One afternoon before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead, discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, new ways of being and new kinds of beings to be. And as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, Really, this is absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And God the Holy Spirit said, Terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in, and after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. 
It was full of water and light and frogs. Pine cones kept dropping all over the place and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and mastodons, grapes and geese, tornadoes and tigers and men and women everywhere to taste them, to juggle them, to join them and to love them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and said, Wonderful, it's just what I had in mind. Tov, tov, tov. Good, good, good. And all God the Son and God the Holy Spirit could think of to say was the same thing. Tov, 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 it's good. So they shouted together, Tov miod. Very good. It's beautiful. And they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like how great it was for beings to be. And how clever of the Father to think of the idea, and how kind of the Son to go to all that trouble putting it together, and how considerate of the Spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing, and forever and ever they told old jokes. And the Father and the Son drank their wine in unitate spiritus sancti, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other, per omnia sacula saculorum, for ages and ages and eternity of eternities, amen. And then he says this, it is, I grant you, a crass analogy, but crass analogies are the safest because everybody knows that God is not three old men throwing olives at each other. Not everyone, I'm afraid, is equally clear that God is not a cosmic force or a principle of being or any other dish of celestial blancmange we might choose to call him. Accordingly, I give you the central truth that creation is the result of a Trinitarian bash and leave the details of the analogy to sort themselves out as best they can. Do you see? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been enjoying and loving and serving one another forever. And the Christian story is about this God having such overflowing joy in himself that it bursts out into creation, into humanity, such that when he sees you, he cannot help himself. He is overcome with affection and joy and happiness. And so, of course, rejecting that community of love in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit leads to all sorts of nasty, horrible things. But it's not because God is a meanie who doesn't want us to have fun without him but because the entire universe is designed on this self-giving, other-serving love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Indeed, salvation in such a story would be about being restored into fellowship with this God, into the love that bonds Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. It would be the greatest dream that anyone could have thought would be to be brought into love and joy that they have for one another eternally. The Athanasian Creed is right. The only way to be saved from a hell of our own making is to confess that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Trinity and unity. Friends, the Christian story isn't good news just starting when Jesus comes to take all the punishment for us. The Christian story is good news from before the word go. It's always been good. Creation springs forth as a creative project of Father who speaks. Who is the word? It's his son. And we're told in Genesis that the spirit hovers over the waters and brings control and beauty to the chaos. 
Likewise, new creation begins when? When the Spirit hovers over Mary and Christ is conceived. In his baptism, the Father declares his love for the Son, and the Spirit descends upon him in an act of joy. In resurrection, in the ascension at Pentecost, all of these things are joyful movements of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And discipleship, being a follower of Jesus, is nothing more than just being brought into that love that binds them. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago at, at Scott Clyburn's house. The goal of discipleship is to be brought into the divine life. We are literally brought into the love that binds Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. You want another crass analogy for the core reality of the story of God and his world? Some of you have been to my house for brunch, and oftentimes after the meal, we'll turn on some really bumping music. And my daughter Nori will transcend her introverted nature with this joy that sort of comes out of nowhere. And she'll say, should we do Ring Around the Rosie? With a big smile on her face. And even though she hasn't talked to you the entire meal, she will insist that you join us. And most of you are fun-loving people, so you join. And we all take hands, and with horrible pop music blaring in the background, we will dance around singing this song over and over and over, and we come crashing down every time, and we stand back up, and we do it again. And not one of us is looking at ourselves. We're all looking at the others. And Nori leads us as she's calling out to whoever isn't participating, come on, join us. Even the crankiest, most bristly theologians have referred to the Trinitarian relationship and action as the Trinitarian dance. And I think a lot of us have a hard time with Christianity from time to time, because even when our faith is doing okay, most of us find it really difficult to talk to other people about Jesus. Because let's face it, hearing that God is mad because we screwed up, but oh, there's enough grace, so I guess it'll be okay, but just keep trying to do better, that doesn't make anybody want to get out of bed, does it? But hearing that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit holding hands and giggling like little children as they dance and dance and dance, and that the invitation to life in Jesus is nothing more than them shouting with laughter and smiles, come on, join us. I'll get out of bed every morning to tell that story. <laughs> 